as children, my brother and I never had an Atari game system, didn't have one of the Nintendo Entertainment Systems, we didn't have action figures like G.I. Joe or anything like that. What we had were Legos. Those little interlocking building blocks that let you create all kinds of things. You know, that, that's what we would get. And, uh, you know, you'd start off with that pile of blocks. You could build anything out of it. I mean, you usually would get it as part of a set. There'd be instructions. We'd build that. And then we'd take it apart and dump them in the bin. And when, it came, when we decided we wanted to play with them, we'd pour that bin out into the middle of the room and just build whatever. And my parents were always really not happy with us if we did not do a good job of picking those things up because, you know, those of you who've stepped on Legos understand that. You know, I, 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 my dad sees that stuff now, and you can I still kind of see his eye twitch just a little bit. It, but these are great toys. Not only are they hard to destroy, I mean, they, they last pretty well. But it's a gigantic, chaotic pile of imagination fuel. Whatever comes to mind, you can build it. You get this chaos of a pile of bricks, and you bring order to it, creating this, that, or some other thing. We make helicopters. We even built our own transformers out of it. You know, didn't have any of the real ones. We made them. And humans are always trying to do that. We take chaotic piles of pieces and we turn them into something. We take different ingredients from the grocery store and we make a gourmet meal. We take piles of rocks and make bridges and buildings. But all around us, things are moving in the other direction. That concrete will weather and chip. Metal will corrode. That second law of thermodynamics seems to reign supreme in our world. Entropy, chaos, continually increases. We live in a world that everything, bit by bit, is falling apart. And that fallen world trends from order to chaos, but God draws us the other direction, from chaos to order. From reckless living to controlled living. Spiritually, we turn from our sin and our darkness into light and life. And as a result, our churches are to be places of order. Several times throughout the New Testament, we see instructions given on how we are to be. Pretty much all of the New Testament after the gospel consists of here is how you live the Christian life. Sometimes it's how you are personally, sometimes it's how we are together. And we are always told we're supposed to be orderly, we are supposed to be controlled. And when Paul writes to his friend Titus, this theme continues. We're now down almost to the end of the Pauline epistles. I mean, you know, we are now in the lesser known epistles of Paul. Everybody knows Romans. You know 1 Corinthians, you may not know what a Galatian is, but you've heard of the book. Titus? Can't even find Titus. You know, if the pages of your Bible stick together, you blow right past it. Titus was working on the island of Crete. The, the inhabitants there in that day, even amongst themselves, had a lousy reputation. They said they were dishonest and lazy. Really poor character and not an easy place to get people to follow Jesus. 
And in this very short three-chapter letter, Paul gives Titus some advice, some advice about leadership, about attitudes, about actions, because God's people are expected to act like it. Friends, God did not save us that we might continue on as before. We are saved to follow him. He did not save us that we could continue to be exactly as we always were. He did not pick us up, dust us off, wash us clean in the blood of his son that we can just go right back to the sin that we partook in. I look around, I see people who, I see several dog owners in here. When little Ella was a puppy, I remember one morning she'd gotten into something or other, I don't even remember what, and it's bath time. You know, Australian Shepherd, you know, she's got this long, silky, gorgeous fur, and, you know, she looks like a drowned rat in a tub, but especially as a puppy. But, you know, I get her cleaned up, dried off. Okay, now she needs to go outside. I take her outside. She sees the neighbor's dog, runs right over there, where the neighbor's dog is right next to a mud puddle. That wasn't why I bathed her. So she could get dirty again. That's not why God saves us, so we can continue on doing the stuff that got us lost. We are saved to follow him. In this letter, Paul does tackle some topics of leadership, and it kind of echoes his letters to Timothy. If you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, these sound like a matched set. We learn church leaders are to be mature Christians, capable of guiding others to Christian maturity. Because here's Titus, he's working in a morally decrepit society. He's supposed to gather a group of capable and mature Christians who can guide other Christians into being like Christ. Hmm, Trying to teach people to follow Christians in a morally decrepit society, that sounds familiar somehow. But the goal for these Cretan Christians is the goal for every group of Christians. Any group of followers of Christ is supposed to grow and to mature in him. This call to these Cretan Christians is our call. When Paul writes to Titus, he could be writing to us when he says, be be true followers of Christ. A real follower. A complete follower. Not a hanger on. Not somebody who just likes Jesus, but someone who truly, down to the core, follows Jesus. It goes well beyond making the initial decision for him. Sometimes we treat getting people from the pew into the baptistry like we have crossed a finish line. Whew, that's done. And it is crossing a line, but it's more of a start line than a finish line. Yes, you finished the process of evangelism. Now you're on the process of discipleship. And that's what we are called to do. As we follow Jesus, we, we need to become like Jesus. And Paul describes how we are to be you know, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 in relation to certain roles in the church. But in chapter 3, he applies Christ's character to all of us where he writes this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul is saying that a true follower imitates Christ's character. You want to be a true follower? You need to imitate the character of Christ. As he is, we should be. He lists off how we are to be here, really throughout the book. Earlier, most of it is in relation to leadership, but one thing becomes clear. Nothing, not one thing is asked of the leaders of a church that is not asked of every Christian. What that means is leaders are to be mature Christians. They're not necessarily special Christians. It's not as though there's a certain gift of the Spirit that comes to our elders that doesn't come to regular Christians. It's not like our elders just become so holy that, you know, eventually their hair can't even take it. It just blows it right off their head. I worked in the first service with Bick. I got Bob in the second service. It still holds. Yeah. Rex, sorry, you know, we got you, but you still got the hair. <laughs> if you didn't hear that, God only gave women hair, he just loaned it to men. <laughs> but we, we get this idea, we put them up on this pedestal that, oh, they're so wonderful, they're somehow special. Look, they're just normal Christians, they've just achieved what we're working on. A measure a little bit more of it. Now, it's not to say they're going to be perfect. If you are looking for a church with perfect leadership, <laughs> well, it's been nice knowing you, but I guess you're going somewhere else next week. We ain't got perfect men in leadership. To my knowledge, we don't have a perfect man in this church. Don't have a perfect woman either. We got nobody perfect in here. The church, has, the church universal has exactly one perfect member, our Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of us, There's something that just ain't right about each and every one of us. We're not perfect. So don't think, oh, this person, you know, there are leaders, they need to be perfect, they should never put a foot wrong. Look, they're going to mess up. We all do. But those, our leaders need to be mature, but... The, the thing is, those who aren't leaders, we're still engaged in that same process that they are. We are gaining Christian maturity. You don't, you don't get to say, well, since I'm not going for a leader, I don't, you know, okay, I've got to be self-controlled, but I don't have to be gracious. You know, that's, a le- that's, an, that's, an, that's an elder level thing. I don't, I can avoid that. No. We're also to be doing that. So when we select leaders, and we're going to be doing this here in a couple of months, we're going to be starting that process. I know all the board members always look forward to it every year. Oh, fun! It's time to start talking about selection committees. But when that time comes and we start saying, hey, if you know someone who could be a good deacon, good elder, don't just select people who've been around here the longest. Friends, this is no union. We don't do seniority here. 
We want people who follow Jesus well. There, some churches can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking, well, this, he's been here for 20, 30 years. He should be an elder. They've done a lot of damage that way. Because we need mature Christians, not necessarily pew-sitters. But don't get it into your head thinking, well, I'm not a leader, I'm not, I don't want to become one, so I don't have to be more like Jesus. Every Christian, friends, is supposed to be more like Jesus. When they draw that line, when Paul describes Christian leaders in the various letters, he is always describing them in terms of having attained what kind of we're all supposed to be working on. Not, not necessarily perfect. We can kind of use these qualifications and be legalistic about it. Want to be careful with that. But if you notice these character traits that Paul lists here in verse 1 and 2, submissive to rulers and authorities, obedient, ready for every good work, they don't talk bad about people, they don't fight, they're gentle, they're polite. You, know, you talk about somebody like that, you're dealing with someone that'll get along with just about anybody. Now, I mean, sometimes you do have someone that you just can't get along with. Sometimes you do have people that just won't hardly get along with anybody. But he's describing a character of someone who isn't looking to increase division or trouble. Instead, they want to work together for Christ. These aren't people that fly off the handle. These aren't folks. They're not men that are looking out for themselves. They're saying, we've got to work together. And none of this is how we are on our own. Now... I know there's always some of those folks, they are nice, they are kind, they are wonderful, they just, I mean, you know, personally, you just want to love them, except they're so perfect, you hate them, you know, you know, you get some of those folks, they're just good people, and God love them, you know, we just haven't been able to drag them down to our level, but most of us are not normally like that, we've got our personality flaws, we're rebellious. We're not looking out to do good work. We'd kind of rather be a little lazy. No, Paul kind of describes and contrasts these things. That no, once upon a time, we were disobedient, foolish. We were looking out for what we wanted to do. He, he does that a lot in his letters. I don't know if you've noticed that, that Paul will use those contrasts a lot. And he does that because he's pointing out, friends, Jesus changes us. We find ourselves shaped and reformed into new ways of being as we follow Jesus. You do not come to Jesus and stay how you were. It does not work that way. It cannot work that way. We're not getting remade because we're getting fed up with ourselves. You don't hit bottom and say, I need to be different. You know, I don't like myself very much. No, we are being reworked by God. He had mercy on us. He forgave us. He has installed his spirit within us. And when we came to Jesus, all this happened. We're saved. We belong to him. And we gradually, over the years, we change so that we're ready for this eternal life. You want to follow Christ truly? Leave behind how you were. 
It's time to be more like him. Because this process of change, we call it sanctification, that's going to happen unless you fight it. And we can fight it. What will happen is you will be sitting there and you will read something in the Bible or somebody you'll be hearing a Bible lesson and somebody will say something and it will hit you wrong. And our hackles come up. Wait a minute, that's not how I am. I got a problem. We got two choices at that point. Two ways of dealing with it. We can harden our hearts and grieve the spirit within us. Fold our arms, set our faces, and say, this is how I am. I am not going to change. And we can dig in. And it's a tragedy when that happens. It happens because our pride gets in the way. We just don't want to change. We want to stay the way we were. Or we recognize, wait a minute, the the Word of God is telling me this. If I've got a problem with the Word of God, (laughs) I know it's not the Word of God that's wrong. Heaven knows I've read the Bible sometimes and wished it said something else. You know where the problem resides when it did that? That's my problem. I'm going to blame those folks at Zondervan or Crossway Publishing. The Bible can't possibly mean that. No, no, the Bible says it. What that means is God is saying something to me, and I may not like it, but I need to hear it. Ask yourself. Where have I been dug in too deep for too long? It's okay if you're a little afraid of the answer. We don't like asking ourselves the hard questions. But if we're going to be like Christ, we've got to. And ask God, pray to Him, ask Him to soften your heart, change your ways, be willing to work on it. Know that you're going to have to stretch, you're going to have to force yourself. You're going to say, well, I don't want to do this, but i got to do it. And you're going to find yourself sometimes failing. Why? Because we're not perfect. Not a one of us. We're going to get it wrong and we're going to come back to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm going to need a do-over. Next time that comes up, help me to do it right and keep working on it because the Lord is trying to change us to be like him. That process is already going on if you've accepted Christ. It's underway. The only way to stop it is to fight it. You're going to be changed to be like him and a true follower does that. We eagerly embrace it. Well, sometimes not, sometimes more eagerly than others, but We recognize we've got to do it. But that work, it's not just something done within ourselves. Our interior work bears fruit in the work that that we do around us. Paul continues on. He says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. What Paul points out is that a true follower also does Christ's work. We're, We're becoming like him, but then we also do Christ's work around us. Paul says, you know, we're going to be doing good works. We need to be careful to devote ourselves to good things. And sometimes throughout the Bible, Paul will give lists. And there's a problem when you give somebody a list. We think that it is the list, not a list. You know, sometimes he will describe certain servants in the church, certain jobs to be done. And I have seen Bible scholars and they put these, jo- put these lists together. And they say, here is a list of the offices of the church. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, so on and so forth. And we think, well, this is what there is to be done. And that's not what Paul was trying to do. He was just pointing out, we serve in different ways. But he never really does that when he describes good works. Because Paul, even though he sometimes he'll do this, he still knows that we humans are silly. And if we ever had this list of good works in the Bible, we'd say, well, here's the list of good works. We don't have to do anything that's not on this list. No, there's no way to even come close to describing all the good works that we are to do. Is it good? We're to do it. Now, sometimes those good works are going to look a little different for each one of us. Not every one of us can do every good work. Sometimes we're just not equipped to it. Folks, there's a reason I don't lead the singing. Some of y'all think, man, Lord said make a joyful noise. Don't think he meant that. My singing is best done without a microphone. Some good works we are better suited to than others. But that does not release us from an obligation to do good work. Sometimes you're, you're the only one there. You're Johnny on the spot. You know, that, you know, somebody needs some help. You can give the help. You are there. Congratulations. You found a good work. As Vic point, pointed out, that good Samaritan, which Jesus never calls him good Samaritan, we gave him that title. And incidentally, one thing that just came to mind when he, when he was talking about that in first service, it is a marvelous thing how in Jesus' parables, in just about all of them, we can find ourselves in one or others of those roles in the, in the parables. If we take those things as stories, sometimes we're looking at it from one or the other perspectives. Not just, you know, the, we always talk, you know, the, the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, but even things... Like the lost coin. Sometimes we're glad Jesus went looking for us. And sometimes we do the looking. Man, Jesus is good at that. Wasn't he? Makes me wish I was just part as good as he was. There are so many good works out there for us to do. Whatever our hands find to do that is good, we are to do. And do it in the name and the power of Christ. Because when we do Christ's work, we're avoiding the work of Satan. 
One thing I've noticed is Christians that aren't up to anything can get up to something, and I don't mean that in a good way. You know, if we're not busy, you know, idle hands are the devil's plaything. You know, is that the way that proverb goes? It ain't wrong. Because he says, you know, don't, don't get into silly arguments. Don't cause trouble. And he warns Titus, don't even mess about with divisive people. Paul always is warning people about the divisive folks. Why? Well, you read the Corinthians? We have two of the three letters he wrote to that church. Why did he write them? Divisive people. They had just about torn that church to pieces. Because when people decide they enjoy pitting Christian against Christian, nothing but destruction follows. There is nothing that will destroy God's work faster than somebody who decides they want to start splitting people apart. Paul says, warn them a couple times and cut them off. First time, they may not know what they're doing. They may not realize it. They may just be, uh, you know, sometimes they're just plain ignorant. You know, they don't know. I don't mean ignorant in slanderous form. I just mean ignorant and they don't know. Sometimes most dangerous folks out there are the folks that don't know what they're doing. Look around, I see a lot of you who've worked in places and areas where you have one idiot working on something who doesn't know what he's doing. They're going to cause all sorts of havoc, aren't they? It happens in the church. But once they know what they're doing and they continue, man, you're not going to get anywhere with them. You just cut them off. He told them to do it in 1 Corinthians. You know, if, if this keeps happening, you, you shut them off until they quit. Once they've repented, once they stop, you welcome them back. But as long as they're continuing, you, you, you cut them off because it never fails. Those who seek to cause dissension and trouble, they're just going to keep doing it. They might play happy for a time, but I mean, I've seen it almost happen sometimes where it's like they set a clock. They come in, they play happy, the alarm goes off, and you almost see them rub their hands and smile. <laughs> it is time. It is like you flip a switch. I don't understand how they think. I, I wish, you know, I'd say, well, let me correct that. I don't know that I wish I knew because I'm not sure I want to know. But man, sometimes these folks, it's just all of a sudden, it's time to cause some trouble. And you got to watch out for them because they will try to enroll you in a cause that will cause a split. It will sound like it's a good idea. But be very wary. We need to judge the fruit of such people. Well, Jesus said I can't judge. I'm not supposed to judge. Hey, said don't judge the heart. He said, but he did say, by their fruit you will know them. I can't judge your heart, but I can inspect fruit. We go to the grocery store. Man, we are so blessed here in the United States. We have such, you know, choice of fruit year-round. You can go into Schnucks or Deerberg's and walk out of there with just about anything, even in the dead of winter. And it's in good shape. It's tasty. It's delicious. I mean, it might not be the peak. You know, I mean, look, local corn on the cob is going to be better in July than it is in December, okay? But... We know, when, you know, I probably see, you've done it before. You've gone to the grocery store and you're trying to pick out something, maybe grapefruit or lemons, and you pick it up and you're squeezing it a little bit. Just Is it firm? Is it ripe? You know, if it's black and wrinkled and looks like it needs a shave, you're not buying it, are you? You 
You know, nobody wants that. Matter of fact, we're almost to the time of year when you get to see people, you know, it, it almost, it, it's kind of hilarious when it's watermelon season at the grocery store. You see people and it's, you know, they're picking it up, looking at it and thumping and listening. I mean, it's, it's comical, honestly. But you get the right one and boy, that's delicious. And then we come to church and we start believing whatever somebody says if they're passing along how dissatisfied they are. We'll inspect the fruit like crazy at Deerberg's and we'll swallow it right down somewhere else. No, we need to be wary. Are these people gracious and loving? Are they building up the kingdom? I've seen it happen. I've seen people trying to drive wedges, not just within an organization, but between friends, even between family members. They went that far. They'd send messages to family members. I think your so-and-so is doing such and such. I mean, they, they were insidious. They will do that, friends. Don't be sitting there thinking, oh, that's, that's an extreme case. No, that's a normal case. They don't care what relationships they destroy. But look, are they trying to build up and do things in the kingdom? I had a conversation with one of these folks. And they were telling me why I shouldn't support this ministry, why I should leave them alone, why I should, you know, join their side. I said, look, I'm involved with this ministry. They're on mission. They're doing their job. They're building the kingdom. What are you doing? Tearing it apart? You show me one good thing you're doing. Well, we, we just think they need to change. No, you're tearing it apart just because you want to. Just because you got a mad. I said, if you're not going to support this ministry, and I named off a couple others, I said, you go support those. You're not going to support this one. Here's people doing the same mission in another organization. You support them. They would be glad to have your help. They need your support. They're doing good work too. You go do that. You want to know what happened? They didn't. They didn't. They just ignored that line of discussion completely. Why? Because they had no interest in building the kingdom. They had interest in tearing it down. Friends, that is what a, 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 dissent, a, a, a person who is big into dissension, who is divisive, that is what they do. That is all they do. It will sound like their cause is just, but friends, you will know them by their fruit. You ask them, what are you doing? And if they're not doing anything positive, well, you just got your answer. Don't get distracted by those who desire division. Leave them behind. Get back to your work for Jesus. You got stuff to do. I'm reminded of a story of, of a... Uh, locomotive engineer guy he works on the railroad all the live long day you know riding in the cab of the locomotive keeping it going he's got a freight train to go drive you know do you think he's going to stop that train just to smack a kid upside the head who's making faces at him by the side of the track what do you think union and pacific could do he got a job to do you don't have time for little jimmy He's got a train to run. Friends, we don't have time for people who are just sitting there making faces. We got a job to do. 
we got a kingdom to build. we got good works to do. We're working on becoming like Jesus. We're working on doing Jesus' work. We don't have time for people to just sit in there making faces at us. If that's all they're going to do, fine. They can do that someplace else. We've got bigger jobs. Friends, God has work for each of us as we follow Jesus. We've got that internal work where we become like his son. We've got that external work where we serve Jesus in this world. Friends, we live in a culture that rejects Christ. It is given over to selfish and self-destructive actions. This culture is rapidly headed to chaos and entropy. Don't believe me? Turn on the news. Most popular movie right now is about trafficking of children. It's a true story. Yes, there are people that evil in this world. This, I don't get the folks that say, oh, our world is just great. Oh, no, it ain't. There's some things about it that are nice. Morally, we are as bad as we've ever been. But even in a culture like this, we are to be like Jesus. He calls us out of the chaos and the destruction of this world into being orderly, into being righteous, into being like him. Everything out there is falling apart. God is putting us together. And we bring order in his name by our work for him. We do God's work we live true to his calling. We follow our Jesus, friends. Because God's not done. One day he's going to remake everything. Until then, he's working on us so he can work through us. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you do for us. We praise you that you're able to use us in your work, Lord that you've chosen us, that you love us, that you redeemed us, and that you remake us bit by bit that we're more like your son Jesus. Lord, use us, we pray. Help us to yield to your calling, to yield to your spirit, that we can become more like you so we can do your work more effectively. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.